You're listening to a message from Victory Dumaguete. We are in a brand new series to start the year called Miracles. In this specific series, in fact, this is not the only series that we're going to have this year wherein we're going to cover the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. But for this specific installment, for the month of January up until February perhaps, we will be looking at the different miracles recorded in the book of John. John has recorded many of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will cover each and every one of them. And of course, you know, it's our prayer that as we look into these miracles, we ourselves will encounter, you know, different levels of miracles in our lives. Amen? Turn your Bibles for a while to John chapter 2. We'll read from verse 1 down to verse 12. It says here, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And when he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants knew, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, here comes the broom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But, this is different, you have kept the good wine until now. John says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You all may are familiar with this story. I guess as early as I became a Christian when I was 19 years old, and even before I became a Christian, I've actually heard this story. I don't know when, I'm just saying, or I make an assumption that all of us are familiar with this story. People record this as the first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. To start with, let me start this by asking a question. Any one of you who's been to a Christian wedding, you've been to a Christian wedding, majority of you, a lot of you have been to a wedding, I think... I was having a meeting with Pastor Tom a while ago, and we were looking at the calendar. And on the first quarter of this year, I'll be officiating three weddings, first quarter of this year. And that brings the count to about almost 30. I have officiated about more or less 30 weddings already. The first one, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is Clifford and Mitos. So that's close to 30. And here's the next question. Every time we are in a wedding, who do you think, among all the attendees in the wedding or everyone in the wedding, who do you think shines the most? The bride and the groom, isn't it, right? It's always the bride and the groom who shines the most. I've never seen a bridesmaid, a maid of honor, a best man who radiates more than the groom and the bride, isn't it? Do we share the same thought? That's always the case, all right? So, hindi po pwedeng makalbugan si groom at si bride. It's always the case. Now, I am sharing that because... The story that we have here is a story that transpired in a, in a wedding. And that's interesting. This was a wedding. And I'd like for us to 
begin with our observation. And let me just look into a few things for a while. First, the fact is there was a wedding, isn't it? There is also a predicament that happened in the wedding. Am I right? They ran out of wine. And by the way, the wine that we have in our time right now, the real wine that we have, would be considered a strong drink during their time. All right? So theirs is much more diluted. All right? So I'm just sharing. That's not part of my preaching. But anyway, it's scandalous in a sense that the couple is on the brink of an embarrassment. I mean, let me try to bring it to our contemporary situation. You have 500 guests in your wedding. You run out of lechon. That's how it feels. If you're the couple, you're like kicking each other under the table. Wala na itilichun, pila kabukin mo lechon gipalit. Anong usara, ba? Wedding day palang nagaaway na. They were on the brink of an embarrassing situation. They were running out of wine. Now, look, yet, we would understand, look at this. If you look at the story, wedding is a big thing, isn't it? Running out of wine in a wedding, in your wedding, is also a big thing. Yet, look at this. There's no mention of the name of the groom and the bride. There's not a mention of the name of the groom and the bride. I mean, come to think of this, John, being the writer of this, he records a precious moment, a big moment, all right? A precious celebration, a great milestone, yet he skipped the names. He skipped the name of the bride and the groom. Why did John do that? Let me put it this way. Who am I here love reading short stories? Many of you, right? It's nice to read short stories. Authors usually would engage the senses of the reader, whether it's the olfactory sense. They'll try to engage you. Say, for instance, it was raining a while ago. Authors could actually just say, it was raining at 3 in the afternoon. But other authors would give the details or will engage your senses. They would start talking about like how the rain spatters on the roof and the scent that it brings out of the soil and stuff like that, right? Authors would do that. They would try to give details. And yet here, you won't see John giving details as to the, number one, the name of the bride and the groom. There's no detail about the color of the dress. There's no detail about the embroidery or whatever. There's no detail. There's not any detail that centers around the couple. So the first question is, why? Why is it that there's no detail about the couple in this story we have? John, what you don't understand is very clear, that even in this couple's biggest moment in life, the focus is still reserved on Christ. The focus is still reserved on Christ. What am I talking about? I would make an assumption that you've heard perhaps dozens of sermons on this specific subject. And I know the moment we talk about miracles, a lot of you are expecting, Pastor Archie perhaps is going to say something like, God's going to fill your own jars and stuff like that. Whatever your situation is, God's going to turn your water into wine. And let me ask you this for a while. Don't you think that God can actually do that? Of course He can. Of course He can. But I want us to understand the same way. Truth of the matter is, that is not the focus of this story. The focus is concentrated on Christ alone. What I love about John is, his writing is never anthropocentric. It's not focused on the needs of men, but rather, its focus is on the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not to say that miracles will not happen in our lives. It's just that the focus is not on us. Kwame can say that the Bible is such a wonderful book. It's an epic story about Jesus and his kingdom. All of us are only supporting cast. In Tagalog, extra. Yung mga tumatalon sa building, unang namamatay, first one minute pa lang na movie, patay na, nasa sagasaan ng bangketa, Filipino movies, yun na, yung bangketa nasa sagasaan. Yun tayo. Hindi tayo ang bida. Possible, recipient tayo ng miracle, pero it still points to Christ. Amen? And I want us to understand that as we start this series, it should translate not just in our preaching, it should translate even in our prayers, in our vlogs and blogs and tweets, in your IG stories, it should translate into our practical living. This is not about us. Never about us will never be about us. Moving forward, I want us to first look into John chapter 2, verse 11. Look at this. It says here, Jesus turned water into wine, and John said, this is actually his conclusion. He said, this situation, this story says, is the first of his, is the first of his signs. Now, I like how the ESV puts it. It says signs. Perhaps in other translations, it says miracles. You can actually interchange signs and miracles, but I feel like we have to understand it first as a sign more than understanding and embracing it as a miracle. So it is a sign. John says this is the first sign. So if this is the first sign, there is a second sign. There is a third sign, a fourth one, and so on and so forth. So this is the first sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Now here's what's interesting. If you look into John chapter 1 verse 2, it's actually full of signs and symbols. It may not show up in 3, 4, 5, 6, but John chapter 1, John chapter 2, it's full of signs, symbols, and all of these things. Now look, look at John chapter 20 for a while. Turn with me for a while to John chapter 20. I don't have it here. Go to John chapter 20. Look at verse 31. This is what we've covered last Sunday. John chapter 20, verse 31. Look at this. But these are written, look at this, so that you may believe. Does it say the signs? No. Right? It doesn't say so that you may believe the signs. So these are written. What were written? The different signs. The first one that we're looking at is found here in John chapter 2. These things were written, not that you would believe and embrace the signs but so that you would believe the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God. Let me put it this way. Say, for instance, you're driving along Shaton, and then you've reached the boundary in Zambongita, and then you're so famished, you want to eat. And then you see this, right? Along the highway, on the side of the highway, you would see different signs. And what I delight to see, signs like McDonald's, 20 kilometers or 8 kilometers away, Right? Mommy gets excited when you see something like that. Tama puba, that you will not park under that sign and have your meal under the sign. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to actually get to the restaurant and eat inside the restaurant and enjoy whatever the restaurant is offering. If you stay in the sign, that won't do you any good. You know, before having this series, you folks realize that they actually announced something. We could have actually announced to the entire Dumaguete that, hey, Victory Dumaguete is doing a series on miracles. Bring everyone and people will actually come here. But I'd like for us to understand that this is actually not the focus of this story. 
it should rather bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first verse, verse 1. Look at this. On verse 1, let's try to understand this sign that we have or this miracle. Look at verse 1. It says here, on the third day. So what do we have here? It says here, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. I'm making an assumption that the disciples here were gate crushers. No wonder they ran out of wine on the third day. So let's try to look at this for a while. I realized that third day is actually significant in this story. If we are to embrace what this story really is all about, we need to understand what third day actually means. Because, look at this, if you know John, the author, you would know that this author is very particular with the sequence of days. He wants his readers to follow the sequence of days that he's been putting or that he's been writing in his account of the gospel. For John, the sequence of days carries a meaning. It's not always the case, but specifically in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, you have to take note of the sequence of days. Now, here's what's interesting. If we follow the sequence of days, though not everything is covered here, it says here that this was the third day, right? I want you to look into verse 29 for a while. Look at chapter 1 of verse 29. Chapter 1 of verse 29. What do you have there? The next day. If it was the next day, meaning to say there was a day prior to the next day, isn't it? Right? And then you have another one in verse 35. That's another next day. You have another one in verse 39. That day, the 10th hour, which is actually the fourth day. You have verse 43, the next day. And then it brings us to John chapter 2, verse 1, the third day. Now, Archie thought we're looking at the sequence of this. How come we're already in chapter 2 and yet it says it is the third day? Now, here's what makes it interesting. In the Hebrew sequence of days, in their understanding of the sequence of days, the word third day here is actually the seventh day. So in the Hebrew understanding of the sequence of days, we have here, the third day here is actually the seventh day. So what are we talking about? The miracle of the turning of water into wine, the miracle at Canaan and Galilee happened on the seventh day. Is there something significant with that? What is so significant with that and the third day? So let me answer the question by asking you a question perhaps. What is the main difference between the account of the Gospel of John versus the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? What's the big difference? What do you think? Here's the clue. The clue is found in John chapter 1 verse 1. That's where the clue is. Remember, in the other account of the Gospel, they started with the what? the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In John chapter 1, John writes this and begins with, In the beginning was the Word, which is in reference to Genesis chapter 1. So my point is this. I want you to understand. My point is this. As John was writing his gospel narrative, he had Genesis as a backdrop in his mind, all right? And I want you to understand, I'm not making this up because true enough, if you look into the first few lines of the book of John, we would understand that John submits that this man is actually the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
That's why there's a similarity between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. So there's a similarity between the two. So while he was writing specifically chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's actually thinking of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, what do we find in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? What do we find there? It's the account of the, the creation. It's the account of the creation. So Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 talks about the creation, right? Genesis 1 and 2, it covers the creation. And then John actually refers to that. And here's my next question. What happened on the seventh day of the creation? The Lord rested from His creation. The created order was already fulfilled, and the Bible teaches us that he rested. So what is the point? What we have here in this story, just looking at the story, what we have here was that on the third day, which is the seventh day, what John is saying that Jesus actually performs a work of a new creation. He performs a work of a new creation. There was a creation that happened in the past, and Jesus is bringing in a new creation on the third day or on the seventh day. I want us to have a snapshot of this. Look at this, a quick snapshot of John chapter 2, verse 3 down to verse 10. The word that keeps repeating is the word wine. It keeps repeating over and over again. On the seventh day, he creates a new creation. John chapter 2, look at this. Like what I said, John fills in the narrative with symbols. So look at this. John was saying, John chapter 2 actually talks about the new wine. John chapter 3, remember this? What happened in John chapter 3? He had a conversation with a guy called Nicodemus. Right? And what were they talking about? Remember John chapter 3 verse 16? Come on now. For God so loved the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about what? A new birth. If anyone is birthed again. And Nicodemus was like, how can someone be born again? Jesus was saying you have to be born again in the spirit. So in John chapter 2, he talks about what? The new wine. In John chapter 3, another sign. He talks about the new birth. Look at John chapter 4. What's this in John chapter 4? He was having a conversation with the, the story of the woman at the well. He was giving them a what? A new way of worshiping. So in short, the reason why the story of turning the water into wine is important is because this was actually Jesus bringing in or ushering in a new creation. It is very first miracle. So in essence, what do we have here? In John chapter 2, Jesus was invited to a wedding. A wedding of who? We don't know. Anonymous. I'm not saying not important, but not the fundamental people that we have in this story. So in that wedding, guess what? Jesus doesn't bring a microwave for a gift. Doesn't bring pillows from Lee Plaza. Doesn't bring the famous wedding gift rice cooker. He doesn't bring those things. Instead, I want you to understand is what he brings with him is the inauguration of a new creation. And I want you to understand is no wonder the couple was not named. Because the gift isn't for them. The gift is for everyone who will believe. That's why he says, I come and I make all things new. He ushers in a new kingdom, a new creation. That's why Bible teaches us 
that if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away, then what happens next? The new has come. I realized that if you look at this, the miracle here actually is not the turning of water into wine, but the miracle here is the miracle of a new life. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that creation is actually groaning. As in the travails of childbirth. Bible teaches us that creation is actually waiting for something. What is creation waiting for? And no wonder why when you get into Fox News, BBC, Al Jazeera, CNN, I mean, there's just, it's just full of bad news, isn't it? Whether it's tornadoes or hurricanes or typhoon, whether it's flooding or whatever, it's just, we're swamped with evil. Creation is waiting for something. What's creation waiting for? Creation is waiting for the new creation. You are saved, but everything will be renewed. It's waiting for a new creation. So what do we have here? So, okay, Archie, what are we talking about? So what about the story of the, turning the water into wine and all of these things? What are these things? These are actually a snapshot of what's going to happen in the future. This is like a future event that's trying to be held off, but yet it is sipping through into the present, and we are experiencing a fraction of the glory of the Lord. That's why John, in essence, was saying, because Jesus has already arrived, we are all now living in the already and not yet. Doesn't that amuse you? That the first sign and miracle of Jesus happened not in a temple. It happened in a wedding. Now, look at this. It happened in a wedding, isn't it? Who's the author of the book of John? John. What's the other book that John authored? Revelation. What happens in Revelation 19? The grand and glorious wedding of the church and the bridegroom, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what John was essentially saying was that snapshot lang to of what's gonna happen in the future. So his two writings are book-ended by two weddings. And the latter one being the glorious one. What I'm trying to attempt to do here is to paint to everyone how glorious and magnificent the God that we worship is. I feel like we will not be over, we will not get over our self-centeredness, our sin, our struggles, our selfishness, our challenge. We will never get over that until we come into a point where we fully understand who the biblical Jesus is. If we are not mesmerized, if we have not come to a point of being mesmerized by how glorious Jesus is, I don't think we fully understand God's word in that aspect. The miracle is actually pointing to a person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at this. There's something interesting that happened here in verse 3. Look at this. Look at verse 3. It says here, when the wine ran out, it's important for us to understand that their wine is actually diluted, not like ours. So, dilipasabot na nahurot ang wine, palahubog silang tanan. It's just a common drink that they have. It says here, the wine ran out. Anybody here who had gate crashers in your wedding? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, who was, by the way, Mary, told him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, look at this, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, when I was younger, my brothers and I, imagine, 
there are five of us siblings, tatlo kaming lalaki magkakasunod, and it was just chaotic in our home. But my brothers and I, we understand that my mom was the ultimate epitome of terror. I never had the audacity to wake up one morning and sit on the dining table and tell my mom, woman, where's my food? She'll feed us to Snooky, our dog then, which she killed by feeding it raisin. That's how crazy my mom was before she got saved. I mean, moms or even husbands, what would you do to your son or your daughter if they start calling your wife, hey, woman, woman, why are the dishes still dirty, woman? I mean, it's just crazy. And I want you to understand, this isn't because of culture. I'm not saying just because it's recorded here doesn't mean that it's acceptable in their culture to call their mother woman. That's actually not the case. So the question now is, why in the world does Jesus call his mother woman? Isn't that disrespectful? Was Mary offended? Now, to answer that, like what I said, what is the answer to that? Why did Jesus call his mom woman in this story right here? The answer to that, once again, is Genesis. Because like what I said, he's writing this, he has in mind the book of Genesis. And what do we have in Genesis? We have to understand that Genesis chapter 3 actually contains the first gospel promise. When God was looking at Satan... He was looking at Satan. Here's what he tells Satan in John chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the, the woman, he says. I'm going to put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman, as we understand, will what? Will crush the head of the serpent. And what is this story about? The inauguration of the kingdom. The inauguration of the new creation. So Jesus, in essence, was saying, I have come here now to crush the head of Satan, woman. So in essence, Jesus was saying, woman, you are so caught up with the party. Party, party, woman. So he's reminding his mother, woman, this is it. This is it. Remember who you are, woman. And remember who I am. I am your seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. It has finally arrived. It's gonna come to pass. How does Mary respond? You know, this all goes around Genesis actually. How does Mary respond? Look at this. When Jesus calls him woman, in verse 5, his mother does not respond to his son. Instead, what happens here was that she turns her attention to the servants. Woman, my time has not yet come. And she tells the servant, what, the, what does she tell? What does she tell them? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You were just called woman by your son. And she looks at the servant and she tells everyone, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You know what? In essence, what she was saying, she was saying, this son of mine is the Lord of all creation. So you better giddy up in obeying whatever it is that he tells you to do. She was not offended because she was actually reminded of the very promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. She was reminded perhaps of the visitation of the angel. She was reminded perhaps of who Jesus is. That's why Jesus was like, woman, 
I know it's been 30 years. I haven't been doing anything, but I'm starting to do something now. Moving further, look at verse 6. It says here, Now there were six water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. It says here, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So what do we have here? That's why I'm saying that it's not as if John was a bad author. He intentionally skipped the names, but it doesn't mean he's not into details because he gives us some details here. He says specifically, there were how many stone jars? There were six stone jars. And what are these stone jars for? For the Jewish rites of purification. Right? For the Jewish rites of purification. And that's interesting. I look at that. The Jewish rites of purification. Now, I did mention a while ago that John, who authored the gospel according to John, was also the writer of the book of Revelation, isn't it? So, in the book of Revelation, we would understand that there's one significant number there that means perfection. And it's deeply significant, and that is the number seven. Carries with it a deeply significant meaning, and that is actually a picture of perfection. Now look, in the book of Revelation, if seven is perfection, what then is six? It's actually imperfection. That's why a trinity of six is the mark of the beast, right? So seven carries with it a weight, a significant one. Six carries with it a meaning, which simply means imperfection. Now, going back to the story, they have six, what, stone jars used for the what? For ceremonial cleansing. Cleansing of what? Sin, right? Sin and the guilt of sin. The problem was, this ceremonial law or purification rites did not happen only during the time of Jesus. Guess what? They've been doing that for centuries. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. There's an endless cycle to it. Why? Because it's endless. Why? Because it's so imperfect. So what does Jesus do to usher in a new creation? He comes to take these symbols of imperfection and there's a miracle to it. He created something in these symbols of imperfection and what He created was something new, something fresh, and something that's going to last for all eternity. So this isn't just about the water and the wine. This isn't just as telling here or telling everyone, okay, read this story. If Jesus did this for the couple, perhaps God can do something in your life. God can actually do that. But there's a deeper meaning to these things. It all points to Christ, amen. It all points to Christ. If you remember in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says here, for the law was given through Moses. So see, during the time of Moses, that's when they started working or using these stone jars for ceremonial cleansing. And here comes Jesus, full of what? Full of the law? Nope. Full of grace and truth to bring in a new creation. Friends, may I submit to everyone that the greatest miracle in our life is a changed life. 
It's our changed life. The greatest miracle in our life is our salvation. And I hope and pray that the gospel will always be fresh in our minds. I'm thinking about this and I realize, man, Lord, I am thankful that as I look into these things, I am on the other side of the book of Malachi. Because during their time, it's all shadows, it's all types, it's all symbols. When you cross over from Malachi, you see the fulfillment of all these things. And what makes it better in our time right now, in the age of the Spirit, you see all of these things written down and you start just being mesmerized by how glorious the entire story is. That's why I keep telling everyone, get into God's Word. Don't bank on just preaching here. Get into it yourself that you will understand how glorious the story is. I want to end by looking at the master's comment, and I love this. When the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people drank freely, then the poor wine, but you bridegroom, you have kept the good wine until now. In Bisaya, if I translate that, he calls the bridegroom and tells the bridegroom, You have kept the good wine until now. What does that mean? I think it says something so wonderful. And it's very simple, but it's so wonderful. I want us to understand this. Everything that Jesus does is the very best. The world will and will always offer you so many things. Everything that Jesus offers is the very best. When I visit beautiful homes, I like the intricate details of the different architectural stuff of beautiful homes. I love looking at beautiful cars. Anything that's beautiful is attractive to us. And sometimes, human as we are, we base our decisions on that which captures our senses. When that happens to me, I realize, wait a second, wait. If I get into God's Word, I realize that the mansions of glory are even beautiful than everything that the world can offer. That many of us here today may not have what other people have. And sometimes it brings in insecurity. It brings in a sense of insignificance in your life. You feel like your life is worthless just because you don't have money, just because you don't have this car or that car, or you don't have the story of other people which you feel like it should be a template for your life. And that's what the world will keep feeding us. But when we get into God's Word, we see how glorious these things are. That we would realize, man, Lord, I will not invest my life on that which is temporal. But I'm more than willing to wait for the very best that you could usher into my life. I look into this and I realize that there were six jars that can hold 20 to 30 gallons. Six times 30 is 
180 gallons of wine. I look at this and I realize there's just a picture of what? A sheer extravagance of what Jesus offers us. A sheer extravagance. Alam niyo po, si Lord hindi po maramot. Ang Panginoon natin hindi po maramot, ang Panginoon natin hindi po kuripot. He is an extravagant God. And I'm not saying this like a word of faith preacher telling you that something's waiting for their stuff like that. But I want our eyes to be fixated on that which is gonna happen in the future. I look at this and I realize that means that if I belong to the kingdom of God, a picture of that is that I realize that my salvation is actually what? A picture of the extravagant mercy and grace of God. Am I with you for you to experience miracles in your life? Would I want for those of you who's praying for a godly husband? I am for you. Some of us are praying for healing from specific illnesses. I am with you in that. I stand with you in prayer. You're waiting to be promoted. You're waiting to have this. You're waiting to get it. I am with you in all of those things. I want us all to experience miracles. I want us all to experience miracles. But I just want to remind everyone, we ought not to be fixated on those things. Our eyes should be fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether miracles come in, in the good or the bad, in the highs and the lows, we will praise our Lord. Amen. In plenty or in luck, we will praise our Lord. We will worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He deserves it. Because He's the Lord of all creation. If you want praise, someone else will. It's not like God is waiting for you for everyone else to praise His name. You just heard a message from Victory Dumaguete. For more messages like these, or to access other resources, please visit victorydumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.